0: Yes. Good morning, everyone. Hello again, and welcome to the Mystic Show. I'm happy to be here this morning. This is uh, this is uh, pretty much the my the favorite part of my day. Um, I really like first thing in the morning, almost first thing. Uh, coming in here to the studio and uh, preparing some material and discussion points all based around spirituality and mindfulness and also personal development right cuz uh i as as you know or you may not know i i feel that personal development and spirituality are very closely intertwined and i don't know if you Try to have one without the other. I don't know if you can, actually. So, I'm happy you're here. Today is actually November 7th, 2013, and our website is themysticshow.net. I don't know if you've been there yet. Have you been there? themysticshow.net, and uh, we have all our past shows are archived there. And also, you can get the phone number... And our Skype handle, you can call us on the phone, you can call us on Skype Whatever uh, whatever mode best suits you You can even write me a note through the website, through the Contact Us page uh, TheMysticShow.net And we are reading from this great James Allen book I mean, yesterday's reading was amazing and today we have another one. So yesterday we were talking about the reign of law and this whole idea that there's a there's a higher law and it really is a law. And uh, anyway, we talked about it a lot yesterday, so we're not going to get into it here. The new passage that we're going to read is actually called the supreme justice. And yeah, so what? I think we're gonna just have to get right into this. So this is, um, it's about average length, so it's gonna, it, it won't, this won't be too long. But uh, again, if you're sitting at home just relaxing, maybe go ahead and close your eyes while I'm reading this, and kind of you know relax and focus, gently focus on on what what's being said. Of course, if you're cooking or jogging or driving, you uh, you probably need to keep your eyes open, and uh, but you can still listen, obviously. So again, this is from the book Above Life's Turmoil, which was written by James Allen, and this section is called The Supreme Justice. All right, here we go. The material universe is maintained and preserved by the equilibrium of its forces. The moral universe is sustained and protected by the perfect balance of its equivalents. As in the physical world, nature abhors a vacuum so in the spiritual world, disharmony is annulled. Underlying the disturbances and destructions of nature and behind the mutability of its forces, there abides the eternal and perfect mathematical symmetry. And at the heart of life, beyond all its pain, uncertainty, and unrest. There abide the eternal harmony, the unbroken peace, and the inviolable justice. Is there, then, no injustice in the universe? There is injustice, and there is not. It depends upon the kind of life and the state of consciousness from which a man looks out upon the world and judges. The man who lives in his passions sees injustice everywhere. The man who has overcome his passions sees the operations of justice in every department of human life. Injustice is the confused, feverish dream of passion, real enough to those who are dreaming it. Justice is the permanent reality of life, gloriously visible to those who have wakened out of the painful nightmare of self. The divine order cannot be perceived until passion and self are transcended. The faultless justice cannot be apprehended until all sense of injury and wrong is consumed in the pure flames of all-embracing love. The man who thinks, I have been slighted, I have been injured, I have been insulted, I have been treated unjustly, cannot know what justice is. Blinded by self, he cannot perceive the pure principles of truth. And brooding upon his wrongs, he lives in continual misery. In the region of passion, there is a ceaseless conflict of forces, causing suffering to all who are involved in them. There is action and reaction, deed and consequence, cause and effect. And within and above all is the divine justice regulating the play of forces With the utmost mathematical accuracy Balancing cause and effect With the finest precision But this justice is not perceived Cannot be perceived By those who are engaged in the conflict Before this can be done The fierce warfare of passion Must be left behind The world of passion is the abode of schisms, quarrellings, wars, lawsuits, accusations, condemnations, impurities, weaknesses, follies, hatreds, revenges, and resentments. How can a man perceive justice? Or understand truth Who is even partly involved In the fierce play of its blinding elements As well expect a man caught in the flames Of a burning building To sit down and reason out the cause of the fire In this realm of passion Men see injustice in the actions of others because, seeing only immediate appearances, they regard every act as standing by itself, undetached from cause and consequence. Having no knowledge of cause and effect in the moral sphere, men do not see the exacting and balancing process Which is momentarily proceeding. Nor do they ever regard their own actions as unjust, but only the actions of others. A boy beats a defenseless animal, then a man beats the defenseless boy for his cruelty. Then a stronger man attacks the man for his cruelty to the boy. Each believes the other to be unjust and cruel, and himself to be just and humane. And doubtless, most of all, would the boy justify his conduct toward the animal as altogether necessary. Thus does ignorance keep alive hatred and strife. Thus do men blindly inflict suffering upon themselves, living in passion and resentment, and not finding the true way in life. Hatred is met with hatred, passion with passion, strife with strife. The man who kills is himself killed. The thief who lives by depriving others is himself deprived. The beast that preys on others is hunted and killed. The accuser is accused. The condemner is condemned. The denouncer is persecuted. Passion also has its active and passive sides, fool and fraud, oppressor and slave, aggressor and retaliator, the charlatan and the superstitious complement each other and come together by the operation of the law of justice. Men unconsciously cooperate in the mutual production of affliction. The blind lead the blind, and both fall together into the ditch. Pain, grief, sorrow, and misery are the fruits of which passion is the flower. Where the passion bound soul sees only injustice, the good man, he who has conquered passion, sees cause and effect, sees the supreme justice. It is impossible for such a man to regard himself as treated unjustly, because he has ceased to see injustice. He knows that no one can injure or cheat him, having ceased to injure or cheat himself. However passionately or ignorantly men may act towards him, it cannot possibly cause him any pain. For he knows that whatever comes to him, it may be abuse and persecution, can only come as the effect of what he himself has formerly sent out. He therefore regards all things as good, rejoices in all things, loves his enemies, and blesses them that curse him. Regarding them as the blind, but beneficent instruments, by which he is enabled to pay his moral debts to the great law. The good man, having put away all resentment, retaliation, self-seeking, and egotism, has arrived at a state of equilibrium and has thereby become identified with the eternal and universal equilibrium. Having lifted himself above the blind forces of passion, he understands those forces, contemplates them with a calm, penetrating insight, like the solitary dweller upon a mountain who looks down upon the conflict of the storms beneath his feet. For him, injustice has ceased. And he sees ignorance and suffering on the one hand, and enlightenment and bliss on the other. He sees that not only do the fool and the slave need his sympathy, but that the fraud and the oppressor are equally in need of it, and so his compassion is expanded towards all. The supreme justice and the supreme love are one. Cause and effect cannot be avoided. Consequences cannot be escaped. While a man is given to hatred, resentment, anger, and condemnation, he is subject to injustice as the dreamer to his dream. And cannot do otherwise than see injustice. But he who has overcome those fiery and blinding elements. Knows that unerring justice presides over all. That in reality there is no such thing as injustice in the whole of the universe and that finishes that passage so let's take a let's take a short break Thank you to Anya for this little interlude. Uh, It's called Bodicea, or I think that's how you pronounce it. So welcome back to The Mystic Show. And we do the show every weekday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, A lot of folks listen to us every morning instead of turning on the, uh, what they call CNN, right? Constantly negative news, CNN. Yep. So instead of that, we like to start our day with some good thoughts, some good uh, concepts, some higher values. And you know what? It makes all the difference. It changes your day and it changes your life, right? James Allen was just talking about cause and effect. I mean, you're listening to this show and thinking about these topics. That's a cause. And it's going to have an effect. And it's going to have a good effect. Guaranteed. See, so I can make a guarantee about this show. (laughs) Guaranteed to produce good effects. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, our website, themysticshow.net themysticshow.net, you can actually call me or uh, call me on Skype. You can call me on the phone or Skype. They're both listed right on the front of the website, um, I think, or the About Us page. I mean, there's only four pages on the website, so <laughs> you can easily find the phone number and the Skype handle. I'd love to know what you think about this reading. This This reading today was really kind of deep. And, uh, for a while I was, It you know, it, it's hard sometimes when you read really deep things that your mind kind of wanders and, you know, you've, I'm sure you've had that experience where you're reading a book and you read a page and then you're like, I don't even know what that page said. So then you go back to the top and you read it again. And then you realize that you daydreamed again and then you, you have to read it again. So you have to read it a few times. I mean, it's, kind of natural actually so that's how i felt a little bit about this passage um the supreme justice right it's there cause and effect is there and he keeps going back to uh people who are if you're if you're really in touch with your passions and yourself and of course i think by passions he means um worldly passions obviously And sort of being intertwined and caught up in worldly matters. Right? Because if we're too caught up in worldly matters, then we don't have any time to think about other worldly matters. Of course, listening to this show goes a long way towards uh, (laughs) helping you do that. So, So the other thing he talks about is that if you've risen above your passions and your selfish self, that then you see that there is the supreme justice. Everything in the universe is happening out of complete justice. And, of course, there's certain things that happen that make you think, how can that be justice? Like, you know, the wars or, you know, the big tragedies or you know, these big shootings where, you know, 30 people die and why did they didn't choose to die? They didn't, did did they deserve to die? Well, that's a, that's an even deeper question, which we're not really going to get into. I would suggest if you want to think about the answer to those questions, you're going to have to meditate on that and uh, get the feeling of the answer for yourself. Of course, we can always chat about it, but uh, I don't know if you can give answers on that level. Although James Allen was pretty much saying in this chapter that everything operates to the supreme justice. And it's hard because when we look at those tragedies, we think that it's uh, in this lifetime we're trying to judge it. We actually have a call. Let's see who it is. Hey, welcome to the Mystic Show. Who's this?
1: Hey, good morning. This is your regular caller.
0: Yes, I'm so happy. Hi, Satya. Good. Yeah, good. I'm glad you called. Did you um, what what did you have on your mind?
1: Yeah, I was listening to that segment as I was finishing my yoga, and uh, and time and again, uh, you know, he uses the the material world law to explain the spiritual <laughs> uh, meaning behind it. So he right. finds parallel always between the material world and the spiritual world and that's amazing.
0: Right, okay. it makes it a little easier to understand, right?
1: Yeah. To explain questions like, you know, why is there, you know, if there is a God, you know, why are these things happening? You know, that's like, you know, the first question people ask, right? Yeah. And time and again, you know, you have the answers and, yeah, we should do a segment on, for example, you know how to explain these common questions that people ask when you talk about God or spirituality. You know, he has you know answered all these things over you know the course of this book, and also the previous book, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, he has answered a lot. I, you know, one thing, Sadia, though, a lot of people who are questioning those things, like why did the tragedies happen, and we did, you know. Th- these people didn't deserve to die and all this stuff. A lot of times those people who are questioning it are so emotional and uh, and in pain. They're in such severe pain that it, I don't know it, I don't believe it's possible for them to have a really uh, sort of objective deeper conversation when they're in that state. What do you think?
1: Yeah, And, and uh, James Allen said that mentioned in this passage also. You cannot you know, understand these things while you are in the middle of it. You have to get out of it, you know, being a you know dispassionate observer uh, before you can understand these things. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, why people who are suffering are you know being impacted, uh, are people even people you know who are not thinking about it, you know, just on the surface will not be able to understand these things.
0: Yeah, but and that's another problem that even that point that we just made that when you're emotional, you can't really think about it. You can't even explain to them that point because they're they're emotional. They won't even get that. So it's kind of like a catch 22.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other reason I called was I wanted to uh, expand a little bit more on the, you know, the topic you covered yesterday on the ghosts of fear. Oh yes. The six, six ghosts of fear. Yeah. So, um, and uh I think you went through a few of those and, and my question was uh, I don't know if the answer was there in the book. Um yeah, these are recognized fears that most people have, you know, in one form or the other. Right. But you know, how do you overcome that? Did the um did the author go into that? At um, all in that book?
0: Yeah. Well he right. So that's a great question. He basically um yeah, so he basically says that there's three enemies which we you have to clear out. Indecision, doubt and fear. Yes. And then he goes through all the fears um
1: but what I wanted to say was you know, uh, you you know, all these fears are based on um you know, the psychology are you know, based in in the psychology of the mind right? In one form or the other. Right. And all these fears ultimately are related to the fear of death or annihilation of, of the ego or, you know, or the body. Uh, so, you know, these fears, in whatever form, whether it is fear of uh, being poor or fear of, you know, running out of money or fear of uh, public speaking, um, so all these are based on the level of the mind and you cannot really resolve these fears, you know, in the, at the same level. So if you are in the, unless you go deeper than the mind, you know, that's like I think Einstein has made a statement or something to that effect. Yes. That you cannot resolve a problem at the level of the problem. You have to, you know, rise above that. Right. So the same way I think is applicable to all these fears, you know, because I've had to deal with some of these fears over the, you know, past 10 years. Sure. For example, I had a fear of flying. I developed a fear of flying ten years ago, and I tried a variety of techniques, you know, uh, emotional freedom technique (EFT), right. uh, and I read a lot of books on uh, how to overcome the fear of flying. But nothing seemed to work, and I used to dread going on flight. You know, before, you know, especially during takeoff and landings, I used to be like so fearful, uh, hanging on to my seat. Um, so right. it never worked, and you know I had to travel for work, and I had to travel for family. You know, going to India and all. Um, so it was, uh, you know, really a problem. And I o- only overcame it recently, in the last few years, uh, I think. You know, because like overcame the fear of death. You know, and you once you go deeper, you know, in in any spiritual practice or meditation practice, you you know, you disidentify with the mind. And try to identify with the, you know, uh, with the eternal thing or the being or the consciousness. Then only you can overcome some of these fears, uh, I believe. Because even the fear of being criticized uh, is also, you know, because I guess uh, your ego is, you know, is, is is being hurt, and it tries to overcome that by throwing accusations and uh, things like that. Right. So. Right. Everything, I think, leads back to the, you know, the fear of the ego. The ego is always fearful uh, about everything. So, you know, even the fear of public speaking, is, you, are, you are fearful of, you know, uh, annihilated on this stage, <laughs> your ego, at least.
0: Right, right. Or right, part of your ego, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, you asked, you basically asked, okay, we talked about the six basic fears, but how do you overcome them? And you're basically saying that it's it's in your mind and you kind of have to go above your mind. And, uh, and, and that's what the author says as well. He says fears are nothing more than states of mind. And, yep. uh, and this, the one state of mind is subject to control and direction. So we really have the, the – fear comes from the mind and it's just like a ha- habit of thought. So we can actually, by working with our own mind – change our thoughts change our our thought habits and yep. you know the on on the the most superficial way to do it is to write down what are your new thoughts and what are your new beliefs and just keep reading them until they're ingrained you know imprinted on your brain um, but another way of course the one that you know part of the practice that we do meditation is to regulate your mind and and really try to go like you said beyond the mind so it kind of comes back to how important the mind is in our experience and, and really that, you know, we're living life, we're earning money and that's great and we have families and that's great. But, you know, it's like the most important thing in our lives is to sort of regulate our mind and get some sort of control over our thinking, right?
1: Yeah, especially I mean, especially in the you know in the modern age, you know you have so many things uh, happening. For example, uh, you know one of my friends, um, you know he he has a well-to-do job, he has a big house, he has a you know big income, 200k up, but he's fearful of retirement. I mean, how do how can you explain things like that? I mean, <laughs> the mind the mind plays a game on you, um, and you think you are going to run out of money. Right. So you, I, I guess, as long as you identify with the mind, you know, all these fears will keep coming because once you take responsibility with the family and everything, you think, you know, you are responsible for everything. So you start to worry about, you know, what happens. Uh, so one thing or the other, you know, people are identified with their body. They are fearful of old age. I, I know a lot of people reach 40 and they are like afraid.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So, <laughs> You know, it is irrational. Even when I had the fear of flying, I knew it is irrational. I mean, I know in my mind, you know, the airline travel is the safest way to travel, but I'm terrified (laughs) at the same time (laughs) as I used to be. Right. So so I think I I just wanted to bring this up that, yeah, I mean, because I I think you mentioned a lot of times, that, you know, uh, this is a show about practical spirituality, and, you know, this is one thing, you know, the fear of this and that is so common, and I guess, you know, the easy way to attack it is through spirituality, and this is kind of a tangible result one can see by a practice of, uh, you know, by a spiritual practice. Uh, I wanted to
0: say that. That's a great point. Uh, thank you, Satya. Yeah. Very good. Um and I actually wanted to ask you a question. The next, um, the, the next topic I was going to discuss, very briefly, actually, um, was something that James Allen just referred to in, in, this, uh, in, in this passage we just read called the Supreme Justice. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to find it right now. But uh, he basically, yeah, here we go. Uh, he talks about coming to a state of equilibrium. And he, here, I'll read the line. The good man, having put away all resentment, retaliation, and egotism, has arrived at a state of equilibrium and has thereby become identified with the eternal and universal equilibrium. Now, the reason I bring up equilibrium is because, uh, you know, be, meditating all the time and meditating with other people I do see other people who are supposedly meditating, but they they just, they can't sit still. Like, I mean, literally, physically, they can't sit still. And that just, well, first of all, that means that they're not meditating, period. And second of all, it means that there's not, they're not in a state of equilibrium or even close to it. And it also no. indicates the activity of the mind. So, I mean... In a way, just keeping your body still is is important. I mean, it's almost the first fundamental of trying to do meditation is that, I mean, you can't sit there and adjust your body every eight seconds and change your posture and do all this stuff and move around like crazy. Um, it just, I mean, how can you really meditate and get into a, you know deeper meditation no. is what we're talking about. Anyone can close their eyes and relax. That's not what we're when we talk about meditation on this show. That's not what we're talking about. Just closing mm-hmm. your eyes and relaxing. So, so I, and I know you do yoga, physical yoga, which may have something to do with it. But what, um, or I, I mean, which may help. But what what do you think about that? Why do you think people can't sit still? Some people they just they're like nervous Nellies. They got to keep twitching their leg and mm-hmm. moving. Why what? is that?
1: Yeah, you are saying even though they are not like sitting on a floor in a yoga posture, they are sitting on a chair, and they still can't, you
0: know. Any um, any posture, Satya. Any any posture. Yeah.
1: Okay. And and these are not new newcomers. These are like <laughs> you know been practicing. Um, yeah, that, that that is really uh, hard to explain. Um, I mean,
0: is it? Do you think it's worth it? To I mean, is is it a would it be worth it to try to like consciously just sit still like start yeah, there <laughs>
1: yeah yeah. especially if you're saying even on a chair you know if, if people are not able to sit still then it is not really a physical discomfort they are having you know it, you know. then it seems to me that you know it is more of a you know, um, <clears throat> you know uh, mind discomfort or they are not able to stabilize the mind uh, right. at all and that is, uh, and the body is reacting to that. Um, that's you know that's what comes to my mind. Uh, yeah,
0: and then how do you know? Do you do you just not do anything and hope that over time it sort of levels itself out, or do you actually try to tell yourself, "Hey, sit still," like you know, like yes. a, like a like a kindergarten teacher would tell you, "Sit still," you know.
1: <laughs> and I, I think the other thing you know is related to that is. Yeah, uh, you know, like uh, I think I mentioned to you, James Allen says in his, you know, in his book, his meditation is not just sitting uh, and trying to focus. You need to have an intense desire, uh, aspiration to achieve something, and and then and then you focus on you know whatever meditation you're doing. Then only it is you know it is called meditation. So uh, until you get that desire, strong desire. Uh, to progress or to achieve uh, or to, you know, uh, the objective of meditation, uh, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. You know Then the mind really won't stabilize. Uh, You know, I try to do this experiment. You know, even, you know, it happens to me, okay, my mind wanders off. It happens to all of us, even in our meditation. Um, Then, you know, then you try to remember the objective of meditation, why you're here, what you want to achieve then it helps to kind of overcome the distractions of, you know, uh, of thoughts. Uh, So that's the one thing that comes to my mind that, uh, you know, that can be employed as a tool. Hey, you know, why are you here? You know, uh, you have to... We do that in our practice. We say, you know, what is the objective before we start? Uh, But also try to bring that back, you know, if you are being distracted by, you know, these thoughts. Which is probably leading to the physical discomfort that that you, you are experiencing. Uh, maybe that that is that is helpful.
0: Yeah, I, you know, you I like what you said. I think you nailed it. That in the end, it comes down to your purpose and your intention of of what you want to become, what you want to gain, or what you want to overcome. I mean, there's got to be some purpose to doing what you're doing. It's not. Like I often say, it's not like religion where you just walk into a church and sit down for an hour every week and think that everything's okay and you don't have to do anything. You know, some yeah, even
1: a spiritual practice can become like that if you're not paying attention to it. You know, it can become just a regular routine, just going like going to Sunday church (laughs) or a temple. Um, So uh, I guess uh, you know we have to overcome that. Yeah. Yeah. Even, a, even a spiritual practice, people can become sanctimonious, can become, you know, all these things.
0: Right, ritualistic.
1: Uh, says, yeah, ritualistic, uh, if you're not careful uh, about, you know. So you have to be on guard all the time, even in a spiritual practice. It's not like autopilot. Once you start the spiritual practice, you know, it's going to go on by itself. Uh, I think we, we have to be aware of, you know, what we're doing, where we are. And if something is not working, you have to question and find the answers.
0: I think what you just said about being on guard all the time and having self-awareness is very true. But I will say that, you know, I've seen a lot of people start meditation and with the right mindset and the right purpose and with the right uh, desire to actually learn and to, to, um, to grow, to improve. And I must say that, and and I think that's what happened in my own case is that after a few years of sincere practice um you sort of you get catapulted to some the next level where it actually is easier i mean in yeah. the beginning it's the hardest because it's so you' you're its it's just harder in the beginning but once you once you can sit still once you can meditate a little bit once you have some more self awareness then you really can't fool yourself anymore and you, you then you yeah. are aware, you're more aware of if you're slacking or if something's happening, I think.
1: Yeah, I think one way you can easily tell is, you know, when you get up in the morning, you know, you, you I mean, you have an intense desire to go and sit on meditation uh, or not, That you know, that's <laughs> an easy tell. Right. <laughs> you are like, uh, I will say, you know, keep trying to happen another forty five minutes then you know you know you are beginning to lose it. You know the same thing in you know in the uh, uh, yoga practice that I did. I had an intense desire to get on the mat even before I started the spiritual practice. Mm. You know, even at five o'clock in the morning every day I used to get on the mat, and that's why I progressed. You know, you know now it may look easier what I do, but you know it took me you know ten years to you know to get to that stage. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I think the same same desire and attitude. We have to bring to the spiritual practice. Uh, then only, I think, you will see the benefits. You will, you know, you will see the changes. Uh, and then, the more changes you see, the more desire you'll get. And so, it kind of works like, it's feeds on itself. Uh, but uh, until you get to that stage, uh, you know, it may be a struggle. you know? Right. Well,
0: yeah. this has been great. Thank you for calling, Satya.
1: All right. Thanks Appreciate a lot. it. Yeah, I good did.
0: points. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll just take a quick break now. Uh, we'll be right back. thanks again to uh, Anya. She has such good music for the mystic show right I mean it's really nice, really well done I mean just a plus thanks again to her and uh you're listening to the Mystic show. My name is Chris Curran and uh thanks to thanks again to Satya for calling in and you can also call if you want to put in your two cents your your two cents could be worth. Uh, a lot of spiritual wealth to somebody else who's listening who might need to hear what you have to say. So just a reminder, our website is themysticshow.net. We have all our previous shows archived there. You can check them out. And uh, you can also get our phone number and our Skype handle. You can call us on the phone or Skype. And yeah, so right now I actually want to tell a little bit of a story, which actually I'm going to read it because it's not that long. And this is another story from the book, uh, Think and Grow Rich. You know, I just, um, I used to do uh, like a book study group on Think and Grow Rich. It was like a mastermind group, actually. And it was great. We used to read parts of the book and discuss it. And uh, it was really, really great. I mean, I think once the Mystic Show gets a little more, uh, gets some more listeners and a little more of a community going... You know, we're, there really is a possibility to do these book study groups, either on the phone, you know, the conference call, or or over the internet. Um, it's possible. So, anyhow, um, I mean, I already have all the facilitator's notes for the whole program, and it's really a great one. So, we talked about the six ghosts of fears from this book. Again, Think and Grow Rich, written by Napoleon Hill, Uh published in 1937, and it took him 20 years to research and write this. It was mostly all research, actually. It's it's not like it's... it. The writing's good, but it's all, all content, all research. Um, so what I wanted to tell is a little story, which is from the introduction of the book. You remember a few days ago, I told the story about um, three feet from gold, right? These guys who bought the mining equipment, and they they were looking for gold and searching, 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 and they didn't find any. So they sold the equipment, and then the guy who bought the equipment turned on the machines and dug three more feet, and then he found gold. <laughs> so it just you know makes you question when you should quit or not quit. And there was, the other story was uh, Edwin C. Barnes. He wanted to become uh, business partners with Thomas Edison. And uh, he was just a nobody from the suburbs, not even from the suburbs, from like some, you know, Midwest or somewhere. And he decided he he just on a whim said, "I want to be business partners with Thomas Edison." And he got on a train (laughs) and he went. And well, you know the story. Uh, He ended up having to take a job, a regular job, and he almost got thrown out because he looked like a tramp. He looked like a bum, and Edison almost threw him out, but. There was some little gleam in his eye that Edison saw. And he said, you know what? I'll give you a job. And then a few years later, he found his opportunity. And guess what? Became business partners with Thomas Edison, which is what he wanted. So this story here is called A 50-Cent Lesson in Persistence. Right? So this is more... um, you'll see it's 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 about persistence it's about some power that we gain when we demonstrate persistence and even if you think you're not in a position of power you can have that power it it's really so anyway let me just read this cuz it's ver- it's pretty short uh i'll just read the story because he he told it very well and then i actually have some discussion points that we can uh that we can look at and I could just make a few comments on it and then you can call up too if you have a some of you may have heard this story and you may have a point or two you want to make so you can call or Skype let me put up the fader for the Skype so if I hear you if you're calling right that would be a tragedy on my end if somebody was calling on Skype and I didn't hear the didn't hear it ringing <laughs> All right, so this is called A 50-Cent Lesson in Persistence. Uh, okay. Oh, should I start there or should I start here? Let me see. Okay. Uh, it's, this is written by or told from the point of view of a Mr. Darby. Okay, so Mr. Darby uh, received his degree from the University of Hard Knocks. Actually, Mr. Darby's the guy who... Who stopped three feet from gold, actually So Mr. Darby's the guy who stopped three feet from gold And missed out on that whole thing And uh, so one afternoon Mr. Darby was helping an uncle Grind wheat in an old-fashioned mill And the uncle operated a large farm On which a number of black sharecropper Farmers lived Quietly, the door was opened And a small child the daughter of one of the tenant families walked in and took her place near the door. The uncle the uncle looked up, saw the child, and barked at her roughly, What do you want? Meekly, the child replied, My mama say to send her 50 cents. I'll not do it, the uncle retorted. Now you run home. Yes, sir the child replied but she did not move the uncle went ahead with his work so busily engaged that he did not pay enough attention to the child to observe that she did not leave when he looked up and saw her still standing there he yelled at her i told you to go home now go or i'll take a switch to you which, by the way, a switch is, uh, he was going to beat her with this thing that's called a switch. The little girl said, Yes, sir, but she did not budge an inch. The uncle dropped a sack of grain he was about to pour into the mill hopper, picked up a barrel stave, and started toward the child with an expression on his face that indicated trouble. Mr. Darby held his breath. He was certain he was about to witness a horrible beating. He knew his uncle had a fierce temper. In those days, poor children, especially sharecropper children, simply were not allowed to exhibit such overt defiance. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was standing, she quickly moved up forward one step, looked him in the eyes, and screamed at the top of her shrill voice, My mama's gotta have that fifty cents! The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, then slowly laid down the barrel stave on the floor, put his hand in his pocket, took out a half dollar, and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed toward the door, never taking her eyes off the man she had just conquered. After she had gone, the uncle sat down on a box and looked out the window into space for more than ten minutes. He was pondering with awe the whipping he had just taken. Mr. Darby, too, was doing some thinking. That was the first time in all his experience he had seen a black child deliberately master a white adult. How did she do it? What happened to his uncle that robbed him of his fierceness and made him as docile as a lamb? What strange power did this child use that made her master over this man? These and other similar questions flashed into Darby's mind, but he did not find the answer until years later when he told me the story. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to me in the old mill, on the very spot where the uncle took his whipping. Strangely, too, I had devoted nearly a quarter of a century To the study of that same power which enabled a small, illiterate, sharecropper's child to conquer a powerful figure of authority. As we stood there in that musty old mill, Mr. Darby repeated the story of the unusual conquest and finished by asking, What can you make of it? What strange power did that child use that so completely whipped my uncle? The answer to his question will be found in the principles described in this book. The answer is full and complete. It contains details and instructions sufficient to enable anyone to understand and apply the same force, which the little child stumbled upon, accidentally. So that's the uh, story. It's quite a, it's quite a story, isn't it? Very interesting. First the man barked, then he yelled, and then he threatened to whip her. And then he picked up the stave and he began to move towards her. I mean, imagine the fear she must have been feeling right then. Imagine the terror barrier she must have been in. Remember, we talked about the terror barrier. And look at what led her to victory. Get You know, this. this is a... A little important point. Well, it's a little point, but it's one of the most important points of the story. When he got close to her, she quickly moved forward towards him. She took a big step toward him. She came at him and then screamed. You know, my mama's got to have that 50 cents. I mean, so, so when we're, uh, yeah, she stepped into her fear and through her fear, because she had she had to, right? I mean, she she chose to really, but her definiteness of purpose was getting her fifty cents. She wanted to get the fifty cents. Her mom told her, and she stepped up, stepped into her fear, and uh, and isn't that how it is in life when we we kind of when we face up to our fears and we sort of confront them directly, they kind of, they're not as bad as we think they are, right? They never are. So stepping through the fear is what she did, and look at look at how it paid off. You know, and then, so it that's just a little story about how this little young girl, and by the way, it was the time of slavery or not slavery but a, she was a sharecropper like a, a like a farm worker and uh and and they weren't supposed to stand up to the white you know the white owner the farm owner but she did and i love that story because it just goes to show that each of us in our lives there's a lot of situations where we sort of resign and we say well that's this is just my position, and that's, that's my suffering, and I'm just going to have to deal with this. We sort of accept certain things. Well, we, we accept a lot of things in our lives. And the point of this story to me was that you don't have to accept everything. I mean, there are times when each of us should stand up and take a step and say no. I need this, or I need that. It reminds me of uh, of that movie, oh man, oh, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, and he's, he's kind of, he's homeless, and he has his son with him, right, and he's living on the street, and he's trying to get into a shelter every night, he's trying to get into this shelter so they actually have a bed to sleep in. And uh, one, one day they were taking a bus to the shelter and somebody tried to, to cut them. Or no, it was getting into the shelter itself. Someone tried to cut him in line. And he kind of freaked out a little. He said, no, you know, because someone, the, the person at the door said, no, you can't get in now. And he said, no, this guy cut and this is, you know, I deserve to be in there. I was here. I've been waiting all day. And he kind of. You know, he was trying to provide for his son, really, and uh, and he got into it, and he stepped up. And even then, the people around him said, yeah, he's right, that guy cut him in line. So people actually came to his aid when he stepped up. So sometimes we have to step up, and, and look, you can take this to the spiritual realm as well when when we face god or divinity we need to face god or divinity we need to stand tall and of course we don't need to yell and freak out and all that stuff and we don't really need to ask for anything but we need to have the guts to to face up and to and to be willing to learn about divinity have the courage to stand up and say yes i'm i'm becoming a divinized human being and and i you know please show me the show me the way or show me the answers or whatever so that's a great story um i wish uh some of you may have called and put in your uh two cents but anyway that was a, it's a great story and really i thank you for listening today this has been a great show thanks to thanks to satya for calling in and I hope you can uh, move through your day now and kind of talk about some of these ideas, and maybe find someone at work or someone you meet today, and say, and maybe tell them the story of the little girl who wanted her fifty cents for her mama. You know, maybe there's something at work that you need to to stand up for. Well, in any case, keep a subtle vibration. Stay neutral in a spiritual sense and, uh, and smile. And as always, keep shining.